in a center for the arts. Tickets 18 to $25 at jewishmusicfestival.org or 510-848-0237. That's jewishmusicfestival.org or 510-848-0237. This program benefits the Jewish Community Center of the East Bay. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. It's 3 p.m. Up next is Cover to Cover Open Book. Welcome to Cover to Cover. My name is Mary Salome, and I'm the host of today's program. My guest is the author of Violence, Veils, and Bloodlines, Reporting from War Zones, an exploration of how entrenched notions of self, family, and tribalism dictate human behavior. The author, Lou Salome, is a retired journalist based in New Hampshire. And yes, in the interest of full disclosure, he is my father, among other things. My name is uh, Lou Salome. Uh, I uh, was not... uh uh, Nietzsche's girlfriend. Uh, I uh, was a uh, newspaper man, uh, editor, and reporter for 35 years. I worked almost 10 years overseas, first from a base in Jerusalem, and uh, next uh, for five years, a uh, base in uh, London. And out of that work, uh, traveling and working from Northern Ireland uh, across uh, Europe, Asia, the Middle East, uh, as far as uh, Central Asia, uh, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Somalia, Algeria, uh, came uh, this book, uh, Violence, Veils, and Bloodlines, Reporting from War Zones. It's the story of the roots of conflict uh, in the areas of the world where I reported, uh, and those roots are... Um, uh, essentially the same uh, everywhere with varying degrees of intensity. They uh, range from uh, culture and religion, language and uh, territorial disputes and differences in interpretation of history, even to the largest uh, tribal or a traditional fault of all, which is gender differences and conflicts uh, over gender. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the book is filled with, um, with mystery, adventure, and humor, despite the difficulties involved in working in those areas. Mm-hmm. And uh, my understanding of what I saw came from my own family background. My grandparents uh, came uh, from Syria, both sets of grandparents from Syria. Uh, they went from Syria to the United States 100 years ago. And so as I traveled and people asked me, uh, Mr. Lou, where are you from? Mr. Lou, where are your grandfather? Where's your grandfather from? And finally, Mr. Lou, what's your blood? I realized slowly over time that they really wanted to know not where I was born, not where I lived, not what my passport uh, passport said, but rather what my uh, roots uh, are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and by knowing that, they figured they could put me into a niche. So I always avoided uh, trying to uh, tell people what my ancestry was, but uh, rather uh, 
gave them a long, drawn-out explanation of being born in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, growing up in Millville, Massachusetts, went to college at, uh, in Worcester, Massachusetts, and Boston, Massachusetts, et cetera, et cetera. And most of the time, people would either lose interest or uh, were too courteous to press on. Mm-hmm. But I did get that final question, uh, Mr. Lou, what's your blood, which is at the heart of the matter. Okay. So what would you say is the main argument you make in the book? Uh, well, people ask, what's the book about? Mm-hmm. And I think that's what your question gets to. Uh, the book is about how differences over uh, religion and culture and language and history and land mixed in with uh, foreign intervention, which usually uh, stirs up the locals, it's how all of those uh, elements in, very, uh, to, in varying uh, intensity lead to conflict. And that big story, that, that total story of, of tribalism or traditional behavior uh, is told through uh, things, circumstances, and things that happened to me, people I met, and what people said. And so the stories are those stories which illuminate the larger tribal story are where the adventure, mystery, and humor come in. And that's the spotlight is shined then on tribal behavior, which produces the conflict. Okay. So do you see examples of what you call tribal stories being played out in non-traditional societies? So, for example, in the United States? Well, I don't deal with the United States, uh, per se, in the book, because mm-hmm. it's about where I worked and what I reported on. But in answer to your question, uh, we have our own sets of uh, tribal uh, behavior in the United States. Uh, you go to an Ivy League college, an Ivy League law school, you're probably going to go to an Ivy League uh directed uh, law firm. We have sororities, we have fraternities, we have voting patterns in the United States in cities that are uh, guided by the ethnicity uh, of the uh, people uh, there. Ethnicity, of course, is another one of the tribal uh, elements that I deal with in the book. So there definitely uh, are uh, tribal elements, our own traditional elements in the United States, but I don't deal with them in, the, in this book. Mm-hmm. What are some of examples of the way you do describe this in the book? Some places where you saw tribalism being played out in your work as a foreign correspondent. All right, I'll give you se- uh, several examples. Of uh, Generally, the question I got was, Mr. Lou, where are you from? And I would uh, I would answer by saying, well, I'm American. I was born in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, and I would draw uh, in the air an imaginary map of the United States, put Woonsocket, Rhode Island up in the uh, far northeastern corner where I was born, and go on and on and explain uh, my life. But I didn't want to be put into a niche. I didn't want to say... Uh, uh, in, in immediately uh, to everyone, well, my family came from Syria because in tribal or traditional societies, then they assume certain things. They may assume that, first of all, that I was Muslim, which, I, which I'm which i not. Uh, they may uh, assume that I uh, ride a camel uh, in my spare time uh, or, or something as silly as that. Uh, so I didn't give them the answers. 
that they wanted and they would lose interest and so on for various reasons. And then occasionally I'd find out, where I'd get a question, where's your grandfather from? Because that's what they really wanted to know. They wanted to know my roots. In Djibouti, a former French colony on the Horn of Africa in East Africa, uh, I was uh, having trouble getting a visa. I'll, I'll, this is a long story, but I'll, I'll try to trim it. Uh, I was having trouble uh, getting a visa, and uh, at one point, the people in the visa office at the airport were uh, stoned on a, a local narcotic uh, leaf uh, called a cot or chat. And uh, I walked in there after uh, uh, failing to get a visa for a couple of hours. I walked in there to try to get it again, and everybody was stoned. So they were laughing and rolling on the aisles, and some a couple of uh, guys were falling asleep and so on. And one fellow says to me, Mr. Lou, where are you from? And I said, America. And he said, no, no, no. He says, where's your grandfather from? So at this point, I said, well, i got to get this visa. i got to get out of here. I have to go to uh, northern Somalia the next day. I'm a U.N. plane, and I, gotta get, I have to get my visa. Uh, so uh, I said to him, I said, well, I'm going to tell him, you know. So I said, my, uh, my grandparents went from Syria to the United States 100 years ago, and they all started laughing. They said, oh, yeah, it explains why you're acting so crazy. Which was pretty funny. I thought it's a, it's a bit of a, it's a joke, and they were all laughing, and I was laughing inside. But I I didn't want to give them the satisfaction of laughing on the outside. And then the most direct uh, uh, question came to me from a guide that I had hired, a guide and a translator. I hired him. I hired him in Skopje, Macedonia, and we were traveling to Albania. Now this man was an ethnic Albanian, born in Macedonia, never going to live in Albania. But he's never going to be a Macedonian because he's not a Slav. And Macedonians are of Slavic origin. Ethnicity, their ethnicity is Slavic. So he asks me as we're crossing the border into Albania, Mr. Lou, where are you, uh, where are you from? And I started giving my Woonsocket uh, Millville explanation. And he says, uh, no, you already told me that, Mr. Lou. He says, what's your blood? And I said to myself, I didn't say to him, but I said, uh, a little expletive uttered to myself. I said, that's exactly what everybody's asking me. What's your blood? What a phrase. And I, I hadn't heard it quite that way before. And you do hear that in the United States if you listen carefully, actually. You'll hear people express themselves that way or ask questions that way. So when he asked me, what's your blood? I said to myself, well, I've got to answer this. I'm not going to fool around. That's too good a question. So I said again, my grandparents went from Syria to America a hundred years ago, and he never asked another question. I have no idea whether what that meant to him. I don't know whether he knew anything about Syria. I don't know whether he assumed uh, that I was Muslim as he was. I, I have no idea what it meant, but he never uh, asked another question, and we went on our way. <laughs> I think that answers your question, but if you'd like to uh, press on, go ahead. No, oh, that's great. Thank you. Um, I want to ask you some questions about your writing process. First, as a journalist, how much freedom did you have to choose your assignments when you were working overseas? Well, I had quite a bit of, uh, of freedom, actually. Uh, occasionally, see, I worked for the Cox Newspaper Group, which includes the Atlanta uh, Journal and Constitution and the Dayton Daily News, and at the time, uh, uh, Austin American Statesman in Texas, the Palm Beach, uh, the uh, Palm Beach uh, Post in West Palm Beach, Florida, and at the time, 18 newspapers. 
So I worked for the Washington Bureau, which uh, received direction and sent stories to each of those papers. In addition, we had a, uh, a, a wire service with the New York Times News Service. Our stories went on the New York Times uh, News Service and the Cox News Service. It was combined. Uh, so I had a lot of freedom, especially when I went into a, a country for uh, a few weeks or a month at a time and when I was in my bases in, in Jerusalem and uh, in London. Basically, uh, the Washington Bureau relied on me uh, to decide what stories uh, were of interest and that we should write about and send to the newspapers. But occasionally I would get direction from each individual newspaper. It would go through the Washington Bureau, and then the Washington Bureau would say, well, Atlanta wants a story about uh, the intensity of the building traffic problems in London or something like that, uh, because Atlanta was having a host of problems with uh, automobile traffic and congestion. But uh, most of the time, especially from my bases, when I was in uh, in Jerusalem, for example, uh, the stories that I wrote were basically determined by me. But that began to change as uh, I finished with my uh, almost 10 years of working overseas, as the uh, direction be began to come more and more from uh, the newspapers and from the Washington Bureau. And I think that was a, that's a, was a big mistake because uh, they would um, uh, watch the television news in the United States, read other American newspapers, and decide uh, this was the story we ought to have or that was the story we ought to have, and then call me and ask me to do it when sometimes uh, the story would be uh, not worth the effort or a, a relatively minor story, an exaggerated story or whatever. So that was when newspapers uh, began uh, to change, say, in the mid-'90s, late-'90s. And uh, but basically, uh, you know, I was comfortable un until near the very end. Okay. Well, backing up a little bit in history, I was wondering if you could talk about where you feel you learned to tell a story, and where you learned um, to write. So well, I'm still learning to write, frankly. Newspaper writing and uh, and, and writing books are uh, totally uh, different uh, uh, talents and experiences. And uh, I just, as far as storytelling is concerned, I uh, I like to tell the whole story, which doesn't endear, uh, which never endeared me to newspaper editors who want uh, brevity above all brevity. And uh, I was interested in telling the whole story. And but writing the book gave me the opportunity to tell uh, uh, stories that, uh, in many cases, I was never able to write. Uh, because newspapers weren't interested in them, and they were basically—they were most of the time the more and more interesting stories. Uh, an old newspaper friend of mine uh, used to say that, and still does say, that uh, when newspaper men retire, they go off and write books <laughs> to get the stories, to write the stories they were never able to get into newspapers. So it's just—it's just the way I am. My personality is I—I I, want to tell the, the whole story. I, uh, I ask a lot of questions, and uh, I uh, often get a lot of answers. Sometimes I don't, but uh, I get information, and I want uh, the, the reader to understand the whole story. That's just the way I am. And then the writing is something you have to work at, and I'm frankly still working at it. I remember once... Um it was the late 80s or early 90s. We were in the West Bank. We had just seen um, 
Bishop Tutu speak. It was during the first intifada. And our car was surrounded by people after the the speech because they saw the journalist sign on the back of the car that you had. And um, this woman came up to the window and she said, my son's in prison and he's being tortured and he didn't do anything wrong and after we drove away i asked you you know well why don't you write a story about that and you explained at the time pretty much what you just said which was that well that's not a story to them you need the back here yeah exactly yeah back here in the united states that it wouldn't be considered a story just that piece of it i sort of started to explain the newspaper or media business to me at that moment like what was considered a story and what wasn't. When you're a foreign correspondent, you have to... Um, you can't act as if you're working in uh, uh, Berkeley or San Francisco and uh, everything of interest that you run across is a story that your newspaper is going to be interested in publishing. Um, you have to have a broader... Uh, Framework, a broader, a broader picture. Now, if I were to then take that one incident where uh, there was the woman talking about her son being in prison and gone and found out uh, how many people were in prison, which, you know, and why and so on, how long, I, I might have been able to quote unquote sell that story to the Washington Bureau. Uh, of the Cox newspaper group in the United States. But a single uh, item like that uh, would not have gotten any interest at all in the United States, none whatsoever. I would have had to expand it uh, a great deal and then hope that uh, an editor uh, in Washington understood uh, the scope of the story enough to to say, um, well, yeah, this is interesting, let's do it. And then you had to go and sell it uh, to one of your newspapers, that is, get them interested in, in, in publishing it. Because you can do a great story, and if nobody publishes it, it sits there. So that's why people write books. Okay, well, I've known you all my life, and um, <laughs> I know you've traveled all, all over the world, and you're very dedicated to your career. How did you balance work and family? Well, I think you could answer that as well as... Uh, um, I uh, always, uh, I was always there. I like to think I was always there for my family, always there. I, uh, when uh, you or uh, Margaret or Andrew had a problem, I was there. I, I usually ended up working uh, longer hours as a result. I'd come home, and if you had a problem with a pet, uh, in the middle of the afternoon, I had a job. I was an editor at the time, so I had a job. I was the editorial page editor at the Miami News. We lived three miles from the office. I could go home, help you out, and then go back in and get and get work done. And then if Andrew uh, hurt his hand while he was running track, uh, I could uh, take him to the hospital mm -hmm. and uh, get things done. And then when I went overseas, when your mother and I went overseas, I was 48. And uh, you were graduating from college that spring. Margaret had already graduated. Andrew was two years in. And so you were adults. So when we moved over there, it was easier than it would have been, say, if you were five or eight and nine or something like that. So our, our, uh, the chronology of uh, our lives 
and uh, when you were born and how old you were when you went overseas actually worked out to be extremely uh, helpful to me in my desire to work overseas. I never had a long-term desire to, to go overseas until uh, the Miami News closed uh, in uh, 1988, at the end of 1988, in that year. And uh, I had the, the offer uh, was made to me about going to Washington or going to Jerusalem, and the choice was very easy. It was very exciting to be able to go overseas and then uh, from Jerusalem to Rome, uh, uh, the Middle East and Africa, and uh, places that you read about and, and never would have the opportunity to see otherwise. Well, it strikes me, and just reading your book and looking at how you constructed the story that you wrote the book the same way you lived your life with family at the center because you managed to do all this stuff <clears throat> have a very dedicated career but you never abandoned that core part of it with your own family either the family you created or the family you came from and I think that's really neat personally well I think that um, you're as good a judge of that as anyone because you're part of that family. But when it came to writing the book, I realized as I traveled and met people from various uh, cultures, various languages and religions and so on, that I understood what I was uh, seeing and hearing, I think better than most, because I grew up in uh, a traditional tribal family and uh, with all the uh, older people like my grandparents who came uh, from Syria a hundred years ago and settled in uh, one socket in Central Falls, Rhode Island, I uh, I lived with those people. I listened. I learned. I watched. And I I also became different uh, because I was uh, uh, actually second generation. My parents were born in the United States. So they were different from their parents, and then I was different, uh, I, I am different, I was different from them. So I had the advantage of having seen the old and growing up in the new and being part of the new. So when I traveled and I saw all these things around me, I, I understood and uh, I could understand and uh, deal with uh, all these differences that I saw. It was a great advantage to me, and that's uh, that's why the, the book is what it is. The last chapter in the book is about uh, my family. I go back to um, the town of Marat Sidneya in Syria, which is about 22 miles northeast of Damascus. Uh, it's a ba mainly a Christian village even today. And that's where my family's from, and I go knocking on doors looking for my relatives. I did this 20 years ago. I first went uh, there in 1990, and nobody knows what I'm talking about. They don't know Salome. They don't know Bite Salome. They have never heard of it. Finally, I knock on the door of this uh, house, and the man comes. He's the local Catholic priest. He's a Melkite uh, or Greek Catholic priest. And he says to me in English, I can speak some Arabic, and he speaks a lot of English, and very good Arabic, of course. And he says that, you know, your name is not your name. I said, well, what are you, what are you talking about? What's my name? And he says, your name is Asaf. Your family name is Asaf. It's the big tribal name. And within the immediate family uh, it, it's it's uh, itself. Your name is Salim, by Salim after the patriarch of the family. Well, I didn't know this. I never heard it 
this expressed in, in uh, my life in, uh, in Massachusetts or Rhode Island. So he's explaining to me, it turns out that his family, his name is Father Alum, his family was good friends with my family, uh, my grandparents, both sides, in Woonsocket, Rhode Island. Their name is Alum, too. And uh, he has, he has a, uh, an aunt who's, uh, who was married to um, my uh, uncle, my grandmother uh, on my mother's side's brother. So I knew all his family in, in the United States, and he knew all about my family. And then uh, on top of this, I knew that my uh, maternal grandparents had left a two-year-old daughter in Marat Sedmeya in Syria. Because your grandmother, the little girl's grandmother, wouldn't let her leave. She thought that she could uh, keep the girl there, the parents would come back and live in the village. She didn't want to lose the whole family. So by the time my grandparents uh, marry uh, Shaheen Mansour and my grandfather uh, John Mansour, by the time they got enough money to go to bring the, the little daughter over, she was married. Her grandmother had married her off at something like 14 or 15 years old to an older man in the village. All of her children, and they're my first cousins, all of her children, or most of them are there now. There's one who lives in France and another one, uh, I think, in Germany, uh, two daughters. But the rest and, the, and all of her grandchildren are there. So when I go there, of course, the doors open wide and uh, they welcome me as a uh, member of the family, which I am. And uh, on my father's side, it's the same thing. Only there, I have second cousins. And my mother was the first uh, born in her family in this country. Hmm. Uh, my father was the oldest of, uh, of his family born in this country, too. Hmm. So this family connection and this family knowledge and awareness has uh, really helped me to uh, understand, to connect with people and they didn't have to be in Syria. It was the same way whether it's in uh, whether it's in Pakistan, Afghanistan, uh, Israel, Palestine, uh, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, uh, Bosnia. I mean, it's the same thing. I have an understanding of the way uh, these traditional types of societies work. Hmm. Well, I have to sadly say that we're out of time, but um, in conclusion, wanted to ask where people can find copies of your book. Well, uh, Violence, Veils, and Bloodlines, Reporting from War Zones, is published by McFarland of uh, Jefferson, North Carolina. Uh, the uh, book is all over the Internet. If you put in the title, uh, you'll find, uh, I don't know, 50, 60 sites where the uh, book can be uh, purchased. And it's in some bookstores. Uh, it's not in uh, uh, bookstores everywhere in the country because the uh, selling is done mainly uh, on the Internet and to libraries, colleges, and universities. But uh, I'm uh, talking uh, everywhere I can, speaking, signing books, and uh, doing radio programs like this one, wherever I can, can do it in hopes of uh, educating the American public because uh, this is... Uh, a book about uh, places such as Iraq, Afghanistan, and uh, other parts of the world. American people don't know very much about it, and yet the American government is engaged. The American military, American people are engaged in many parts of the world. So it's important that I think the book be read. Thank you very much for joining us today. Well, you're most welcome. Thank okay. you for your time and questions.
Thanks for listening to Cover to Cover today. And thanks to Vinny and Amelia for their help arranging this program. You can reach Lou Salome by email at salometops at earthlink.net. That's S-A-L-O-M-E-T-O-P-S at earthlink.net. Flash from Haiti, a benefit for East Bay Sanctuary, the Haiti Action Committee presents video from the camps of earthquake survivors, news of 20,000 Haitian women demanding the return of President Aristide, analysis of why six months after the earthquake, international aid does not reach the people who need it, and a celebration of the grassroots organizations that are working to reconstruct their country. The Haiti Action Committee brings us eyewitness reports for this news flash at La Peña Cultural Center, 3105 Shattuck Avenue, Berkeley, on Saturday afternoon, July 10th at 4 o'clock. The $7-20 sliding door charge goes to support the people of the grassroots who are rebuilding Haiti. listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno and online at kpfa.org. At 3.30 it will be free speech radio news, so please stay tuned. <laughs> 